Well, good morning, family. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles open to the book of Romans and to chapter 12 of Romans. Romans chapter 12. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's one in the pew in front of you. I'd love for you to turn there and to follow along as we study together this morning. This past week, one evening, Janet and I were in the car and we were heading to my my grandson's baseball game. Uh, I had not been to these particular baseball fields before. And while I knew generally where they were, I uh, didn't know exactly, but we were running late and there really wasn't time to stop and, and look up and see where they were. But after all, they're in Wright City, so how hard can it be to find them? And... Uh, <laughs> You guys know how those stories work. Usually when you think that, it usually can be very hard. The reality is this time, while they were a couple of little anxious moments as I was turning, ended up driving right to them. But, you know, even just saying that, some of you think, what kind of a fool ever gets into a car and starts heading somewhere when you don't know where you're going? And then the rest of us are all, when I say that, you're going, yeah, I do that all the time. And uh, maybe these days and times it's not too devastating when we do that because we just plug it into our phone, you know, or we plug in something into the GPS in the car. But if you've ever been in those situations where you don't have access to the phone or the GPS and you're trying to find your way to some place you don't know, you understand how that can be a real problem. It can be frustrating. It can be a little frightening perhaps, certainly it involves wasted time and sometimes missed opportunities. And most of us have been there at some point or other. Well, also, most of us understand, you're here in church this morning, most of us understand that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that we are to live our life then as Jesus followers, followers of Jesus or the biblical term for that is disciples of Jesus. The word disciple simply means a follower. As Christians, we're supposed to be disciples of Jesus. But that raises the question, if being a disciple, being a follower of Jesus is what we are supposed to be, if that's the goal, then the question is, what does that look like? How do you get there? What are we aiming for if the goal is to be a follower of Jesus? That's, I think, a tremendous question. Far more important than getting in the car and wondering where the ball fields are. What does a disciple of Jesus look like? A number of years ago, the elders here at the chapel sought to answer that question. After all, if we're in the business of making disciples as a church, then what does that look like? It was a challenging question as we recognize that discipleship isn't just some achievement that we all reach one day. It's not something that you wake up one morning and say, you know, yep, did that, did that, did that, went through this class, went through that class, I did this, yep. There we go. Disciple. I reached disciple first class. We check it off, then we go on our merry way. 
Rather, and we all realize that's kind of foolish, but being a follower of Jesus isn't an, ach- an achievement that we can check off our list as done. Rather, it's an ongoing process, one that will not be fully complete until, as Romans chapter 8, a few chapters before this says, it will be complete when we stand before Jesus Christ in heaven and finally there it says that we will be fully conformed to His likeness. In the meantime, being a disciple of Jesus, being a follower, is really a way of life. It's a way of living. It's a daily journey. And so our elders chose to define that, at least in our circle here as a church, in terms of four essential engagements that every disciple, every follower of Jesus needs to be active in engaging, active in doing. Four steps as it were, but they're not just four steps. You do one, two, three, four and you're done. But four steps that we are continually to be doing all of as followers of Jesus. These four engagements, in other words, are the next or the continuing steps for every follower of Christ. Over the past few weeks, we've been studying together in here in Romans 12 and looking at these, these four steps, these four essential engagements of discipleship. We saw in verses 1 to 2, the first of these is grow, and it refers to our relationship with God, that we are to be growing continually in our relationship with Him and in our living for Him. And in the process of that, we are to be transformed in our thinking through the Word of God. Secondly, in verses 3 to 9, we saw that as followers of Jesus, we are to connect, referring to our relationship to one another as believers in Jesus Christ, in the body of Christ, the church. We are to be connecting together with the body of Christ. We are members, it says, of one another then last week, and Pastor Aaron led us in that study, and uh, last week and the week before, last week in verses 9 to 13, we saw that we are to serve. That is our function, that we are to be using gifts that God has given to us, spiritual gifts, the Bible calls them, spiritual abilities to serve Christ and to serve His body, the church. We are to be active using those gifts. Today we come to the fourth of these, of these steps, these essential engagements of a follower of Christ. And we find them here in verses 14 to 21 of Romans 12. And we find here that we are to reach. This refers to our relationship with unbelievers, those who don't know or trust or follow Jesus Christ. Not only is discipleship something then that we are to to be, to be followers, how we are to live, to live as followers of Christ, but it is also our mission. We are to reach out and to bring others to follow Jesus Christ, to become disciples of His. It's the mission that Jesus gave us, of course, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, just before He returned to heaven, just before He left, He said to us, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything which I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end 
of the age. So that's what we're going to look at today. And I would encourage you here to look, follow along in chapter 12 as I pick it up in verse 14. And let's dig into this text and see what it has for us this morning. We actually read it already, but let me read these first couple of verses. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. He starts off and he says, the first thing that we are to do here is we are to bless our persecutors. Notice he simply assumes that you have persecutors. That if you live, if we live as believers in Jesus Christ, that sooner or later we will have those who persecute you. He takes that for granted. He just assumes it's there. Jesus, of course, promised that reality to us. John chapter 15, Jesus said, Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. We find also over in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You may not be undergoing persecution right now, but the Scripture says if you truly seek to follow Jesus Christ, if you really aim to live as a follower of Jesus Christ, you will sooner or later encounter difficulty, persecution, there is a cost to pay as a follower of Jesus. But when that happens, our text tells us, we are to bless them, not to curse them. Of course, Jesus said this over in Luke chapter 28. You know, He said, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. He goes on. Not only are we to bless them, he says in verse 15, we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now usually we read this verse and we think this is a verse that we apply to one another. And so I'm to look and when you're rejoicing, I should rejoice with you, my brother, my sister in Christ. When you're you're going through hard times, I should come alongside and I should weep with you. And that is true. But I, I notice he says that we are to Bless those those who persecute you, and we are to rejoice with those who rejoice, and we are to weep with those who weep. Why should we assume that the those in verse 15 is different than the those in verse 14? May I submit that when we rejoice with those who rejoice, He doesn't just mean our brothers and sisters in Christ and the people we like. But I think he's applying that to our persecutors as well. Because what, is, what else does it mean to bless them other than to hope that, and to desire that things go well for them? That is really what a blessing is. May things go well with you. To bless our persecutors is to, is to really desire that things go well and when they do, to rejoice with them. Does anybody find that weird? He said, don't curse them. We go, okay, well, that's hard. I won't do that. But rejoice when things go well. 
Well, that really is what the definition of blessing them is. And to weep when things go badly for them, when they're weeping. I mean, quite frankly, my natural response when my persecutor, when things go bad, I'm like, yes! Right? You're with me. (laughs) But that really isn't what this Scripture says. We've got to tie those together. Live in harmony with one another. We are to try to live in harmony with them, also with us, with one another. By the way, may I say that we can apply this not only, and going back to that one, we, weeping with those who, rejo- who weep and rejoicing with them is to have genuine concern for all people, not just our friends, not just our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to live in harmony with folks. That includes folks in the body of Christ. That's especially important, I think, as you and I are undergoing difficult times. We as the body, we as the family need to encourage one another, stick together, and not fight our teammates. How often have you seen it that Christians are fighting each other? When we do that, we... Our witness before unbelievers is ruined and we lose focus on the mission. We are to try to get along with everyone, live in harmony with folks. And then he says, don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. In other words, be humble. Don't be haughty. Don't be Aloof, don't be higher than everyone else. Several very practical things as I look at this. One is that we are not to be elitists. By haughty, we tend to, haughty means to kind of look down your nose at everybody else. We shouldn't do that. And one of the ways it manifests itself is that we are to not just be folks, or those folks who hang out with the elite looking for the folks who are popular, the folks who are beautiful, the folks who enhance our reputation and enhance our status, and we look to go hang with them. That is the tendency of people. It is the way of the world, but it is not to be the way of believers. We are to genuinely care for all folks, and he says here, makes a special effort to point out we are to associate with the lowly. We are to reach out with those who are unlovely and unpopular. Those who we risk our reputation to hang out with. You know, we won't be cool if we spend time with them. We are not to be elitists. He says here that we are not to be wise in our own sight. Meaning we are not to be impressed with ourselves. Not to be impressed with our great wisdom, nor our great goodness. Tying it back into the blessing our persecutors, it means that we don't look at our persecutors and we comfort ourselves by the fact that we are so morally superior to them. We don't pat ourselves on the back for that. We don't pat ourselves on the back for how much wiser we are that we aren't living as foolish as they are. Rather, that we realize that We are nothing but great sinners who have been saved by God's great grace. 
We are not higher than any others, even our persecutors. Therefore, we do not look down upon them with a haughty, lofty atmosphere and attitude. We're to be, we are humble. It says we are to bless our persecutors. A lot of practical things and ways in there to apply that. Verse 17, he goes on. says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We are to bless our persecutors. We are also, here he says, not to repay evil for evil. Have you noticed that we live in a world full of sinful people? Anybody notice that? And it's just really likely that sooner or later in living in a world full of sinful people that one of them is going to step on your toes. Probably sometime today. And throughout the week and day by day and month by month and year by year, people do us wrongly. They, they do wrong to us. They treat us badly. It's inevitable. And what he says here is we are not to treat people based upon how they treat us. We are not to repay to others evil according to how they have paid evil to us. That is the way of the world. It's the way that things work. Usually we treat our friends well. People who treat us well, we treat them well. The folks who don't. And so for, you know, for the neighbor who's nice, we have great nice words and nice gestures. We'll take them a plate of cookies. For the folks that do well, you know, that treat us well, we do good. But for the folks who are unkind, the folks who are mean, the, the people who cheat us or defraud us or hurt us, we don't have kind words. We don't have nice gestures. We don't have good attitudes. That's the way that we naturally do things, but he says here, that should not be. Repay no one evil for evil. He says, but give thought to do what is honorably. Instead, we are to live honorably. Our actions should be visibly honorable. They should be visibly good. They should be demonstrably right to anyone who is watching anytime. So that when your neighbor Bill is watching you with your neighbor Fred, who is always nice and kind to you, that Bill sees you treat Fred the same as Charlie, who is just a mean, grumpy... But Bill sees that you treat them both the same. You do not return evil for evil. That's what he says, live honorably in the sight of all. We are the same person whether people treat us well or whether they treat us badly. The text says here that we are to give thought to do this. 
I like the way the NIV translates it. It says, be careful. In other words, we need to think ahead and we need to take care and we need to be proactive and we need to be uh, intentional and deliberate in dealing with people honorably, with dignity and integrity, especially those folks who treat us badly. I don't know if you've noticed, but very often in our lifetime, the people who treat us badly tend to treat us badly again and again. In other words, after a little bit, we know it's coming. And so when you know it's coming, you can be intentional and you can be proactive and go, I know that things are going to happen badly here. And you can prepare yourself in parenting, at least in our house, my wife and I call this pre-teaching. We did it with our kids. When you're going to grandma's house, you know, you, you lay down the rules. We're going to grandma's house. Here's, here's the rules. Everything in grandma's house breaks. Don't touch anything, you know. Or, you know, we're going, wherever we're going, we say, you know, you have to be really quiet. And if you sit really quiet, it's going to take, you know, we're going to be here about an hour. You sit quietly and you play. And when it's done, you get a treat. You know? We do that with our kids, right? What he's saying here is we need to do that with ourselves. I know when I go talk to so-and-so, they typically have those little biting, sarcastic comments. I know that this person has done this. I know they do that. And I know there's a tendency for me to get riled up about that and act wrongly and, and, you know, whatever. And you just think ahead and you plan ahead so that I act honorably. And we get in the habit of acting honorably with the things we know are coming to help prepare us for the ones we don't know are coming. Be intentional. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought, prepare, plan ahead to act honorably in the sight of all. And be peaceable, he says. Be peaceable. Do our very best to live peaceably, peaceably with everyone. As far as it depends on you, he says, live peaceably with all. Now, I notice that Paul is a realist. He recognizes that no matter how hard we try and no matter what we do, there are some people who will not get along with you. There are some people who will not like you. They will not, you know, they will not live in peace with you no matter what you do. But the point is, he says, insofar as it's possible with you, we make sure that it's the problem that, that our attitudes, our thoughts, our actions, our words, they're not part of the problem. If they choose to respond badly to me, I can't control them, but I'm going to make sure that my words, my actions, and my attitudes are honorable. These are pretty hard things, aren't they, so far? Very little of this has been easy. There's more. Verse 19. Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I struggle with blessing my persecutors. I struggle with repaying evil for evil. I struggle with wanting to take revenge too. My favorite movies are revenge movies. Yes, Dirty Harry. 
<laughs> no, it wasn't Dirty Harry. It was Hang 'em High, the old Clint Eastwood uh, Western movies. Yeah. Yeah, you know, they see goes and gets even. Yeah, that's good. We like that. He said, uh-uh. Don't take revenge. Never avenge yourself. No revenge, no excuses, no exceptions. Ever. Why? He goes on. Leave it to the wrath of God. Let God be the judge. Let God be the judge. And the reason is because it's His job, not ours. Awful lot of reasons why you and I have no business being the judge. Let me just give a few. First of all, we're very likely to be unjust in our vengeance. In our anger, we will likely overreact. In the haste of our anger, we will probably jump to the wrong conclusion at one time or other and we'll be wrong. Secondly, we are unqualified to judge because not only are we victims, but we are also perps. <laughs> In other words, for every time that we have suffered wrong at the hand of someone else, we have probably two or three times dispensed it. We are not morally qualified to be the judge. Well, there is only one righteous judge. Vengeance, by the way, doesn't tend to end matters. It simply tends to perpetuate them. And so, it ends up turning from one act of wrong to a revenge, which turns into a desire for more revenge, which turns into, you know, the Hatfields and McCoys. <laughs> I notice as well that God here makes a promise. Did you see that? God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. For the one who is a believer in Christ, we need to take God at His word. We need to believe Him. God says, I'll take care of it. It's my job, and I will repay. We must trust Him as the, as the judge. We must trust Him as the one who avenges evil. We must trust Him as the one who protects His children. We must trust Him for justice. Let God be the judge. Verse 20, one more thing here in this list. Verse 20 says, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Paul quotes here from Proverbs 25, verses 21 to 22. I won't turn there because it's a direct quote. You can read it right here. Jesus said something very similar to this. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. A couple of verses later, he goes on, he says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brother, then what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? 
Do good to the folks who are count themselves as your enemies. Because if the only ones that you do good to, if the only people you really care about and greed, if the only ones you love are the people that love you and like you and that you like, if those are the only ones you do good to, then what difference is there between you and the pagans? The tax collectors were the worst of the worst. It says, even they do that. Child of God should be different than that. We are to show grace to our enemies even as He has shown grace to us. A few years ago, our missionary on Paradise Island, John, he told us uh, in a letter a story about a young man that we'll call Abraham, who was a young man on the island, on Paradise Island there. Abraham became a believer in Jesus Christ. And uh, if you know the situation there on the island, it's predominantly a Muslim island. And, and when someone becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, uh, they immediately have people who are now their enemy because they're a believer in Isa, follower of Jesus. And so Abraham, when he became a believer in Jesus, Immediately, he started taking flack from people. He immediately had enemies. A few months after he became a follower of Jesus, Abraham's one and only cow got sick. And it could no longer stand, and he realized they were going to have to kill his cow. Abraham, like most of the people on Paradise Island, are desperately poor. And this one and only cow represented a large part of everything they owned. And to kill this cow was a huge financial loss. And so the only sensible thing is when you kill the cow, you butcher it and you sell the meat and you try to recoup at least a little of your investment and your wealth in this cow. But Abraham decided to do something very unique. He saw an opportunity instead of trying to recoup some wealth. He saw an opportunity to show some love. And Abraham, he butchered the cow and he invited the whole village, everyone to come to a feast that he provided, including all of his enemies. He invited them to come and eat and feast at his expense. He could ill afford financially to do that. But in his words, it was a great opportunity to show the love of Jesus to his enemies. That's what this is calling us to do. Do good to our enemy. Now you probably noticed by now that our title and what I said this is all about is about reaching out with the Gospel of Christ, our, our the fourth engagement and responsibility and step here for us as followers of Jesus is to reach out to unbelievers, to share the gospel, to evangelize, to call others to be followers of Jesus. And if you've noticed, this passage has not said one word about that. And I know you've noticed that because you are astute observers. And you've been waiting, wondering, when are we going to get there? And we're at the end of the chapter. You realize this has said nothing about that. 
So let me help tie this together. First of all, let me note that Paul, the Apostle Paul, has already made the point in this book just a couple of chapters back over in chapter 10 that you and I need to be you need to be engaged in the in the mission of sharing the good news of Jesus with people who haven't heard. It's back in Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says this. It says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anybody who calls on Jesus will be saved. But he goes on. The next verse says, how can they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How can they believe in one in whom they have not, of whom they have not heard? How can they hear unless someone preaches? Paul is making the point. People can't believe in Jesus if they don't hear about Jesus, so what do we need to be doing? We need to be telling people about Jesus. That point's already been made. So secondly, while these verses here in Romans 12 don't call us to evangelize and preach, what they do is they call for you and me to live in such a way that our message will be heard when we speak it. What they do is they call us to live in a way of life that makes Christianity both attractive and believable to unbelievers, to an unbelieving world. And that really is the point of this last verse, verse 21, where it says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, brothers and sisters, when life gets difficult, and it will, sooner or later it will, whether it gets difficult because of persecution, or whether it gets difficult because of evil people, whether it gets difficult because of unfair treatment, or whether it gets difficult simply because of, quote, bad circumstances, whether it is illness, whether it is, it is financial problems, whether, whatever it is, you and I are not to succumb to responding to those difficulties and problems in life like, quote, normal people. And by normal people, I mean by people who don't know Jesus. We're to respond and we are to live differently. In the way that these verses have outlined for us, we're to, we're to respond and live with goodness and grace. We're to see these difficulties and these problems as Abraham on Paradise Island did as an opportunity to show the grace and the goodness of God through our difficulty. And why would we do that? Because the cost of these things is high. Blessing our persecutors, not repaying evil for evil, not taking revenge, doing good to our enemies, the cost of those things is high. Why would we do that? And I take us back to where we started four weeks ago in verse 1 of chapter 12, where it begins with, I 
appeal to you, I, I urge you, I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, or as one translation, in view of God's mercies. The appeal of all of this goes back to, as we noted a few weeks ago, everything that happens before in Romans where the focus is all on every good thing that God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Everything that He's done for you in the past, how He has brought you, rescued you out of sin, how He's rescued you out of a hopeless condition, how He has forgiven your sin in Jesus Christ, how He has adopted you into His family, He has made you His child. It talks about the goodness of God, Romans chapter 8, right now. That whatever is going on in your life right now, that God is at work working everything together for our good. We sang about that earlier in, one of, in some of the songs. How even, even when we're going through difficult things, we understand that we never walk alone. He is always with us. God's goodness in the past, God's goodness in the present, God's goodness in the future. Romans chapter 8, that God has destined us He's given us a destiny of glory that we're going to get heaven, that we're going to be exalted with Christ, sharing the inheritance of Christ. I don't know why, but it's the great grace of God and He's guaranteed it. And all we can do is just go, wow! Why would we offer this kind of grace and this kind of goodness to people who don't deserve it at great cost to us? Well, in view of all God has done for us, point is, how can we do anything less than that? It is, as verse 2 goes on to say, it is the reasonable thing. It's the only logical thing left to do. Is to take the grace that God has given to us and to reflect that and to spread that to a very messed up world and, desperately, and people who desperately need grace. And when God's people do that, it is powerful. That's why it is no mere coincidence that if you look back in the history of the church over these last two millennia, that you will discover that the times when the church has grown the most, has grown the fastest and the, and the biggest, it is always in the times when the church is suffering the greatest. Tertullian, writing in just at the close of the second century, 197 A.D., he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So it was in those early centuries of the church, so it is still today. Here in America, where primarily things are easy and things are good and we're all fat and happy, most of the time, the church overall is shrinking. Since the communists took over China in 1949, the communist revolution, the Chinese government has sought to eradicate Christianity from China. Seventy years of persecution and the church in China has flourished. At the time the communists took over China, there were roughly 750,000 Christians in China. The doors shut and nobody knew what happened. 
when the doors opened up a little bit and we got glimpses of China back in the 70s and 80s, what people discovered is that there were millions of Christians. Nobody really knows even yet today how many Christians are in China. The Chinese government itself says there are 110 million evangelical or Protestant Christians in China today. There was a softening of persecution in China during the 1980s and 90s into a little bit of this millennia. But beginning about five, six years ago, the persecution in China has taken a drastic turn for the worse. Things have gotten much worse there for our brothers and sisters. And yet the church is still exploding in growth in China right now. The researchers tell us if it hasn't happened already, sometime in the next two to three years there will be more evangelical believers in China than in the United States. And that within a few more years there will be more evangelical believers in China than in any other nation on earth. You see, when God's people live godly in difficult times, the gospel advances. And even in prosperous, safe America, believers, every one of us, face difficult times. And when we do so, it provides wonderful opportunity to be a witness for Jesus in the way we respond. Years ago, Phil Smith, who was one of our chapel missionaries, was training pastors in Vietnam at a time when Christians there were being severely persecuted. I will never forget a message that we received from one of those Vietnamese pastors that was sent back to us. He said, He said, Tell them, it's us, not to pray that the persecution will stop. Ask them instead to pray for us to have boldness to speak and for grace for us to love our persecutors so that they may come to believe in Jesus. He wanted to put this passage here in Romans into practice because they recognized that in so doing was the opportunity for the greatest advance for the gospel of Christ. Not a one of us wants difficulty or suffering. But I pray that His heart will be our heart. That we will have a greater concern for God and a greater concern for others than for our own comfort. That we will love even those people who make our lives difficult. That we will have boldness to open our mouths and speak about Jesus. And that other people will come to faith in Christ through our witness even when we're living in difficulty. Let's pray. Father, not a one of us wants difficulty, but I thank You that from what Your Word says, Back in chapter 8, whatever comes into our life, you're working in it for our good. You have a plan. And when you put us through difficult times, they provide opportunities for us 
to point others to Jesus. Lord, help us to be faithful in that. Help us not to be so eager to get out of the difficulty that we miss the opportunity. Help us to have the heart of that pastor that we desire to see above all else You glorified and people come to know Jesus. Give us grace, Father, whatever our circumstances are, that that we might live and we might respond to those circumstances and those people in such ways that Your love and Your grace is evident, unmistakable, so they understand that You love them and that You will help us to love them too. Father, then help us to be faithful in breaking the sound barrier. To open our mouths and share the goodness of Your mercy and grace with others. For how will they believe in Him unless someone shares Christ with them? Father, may You make these things a reality in us, Your people, and in this church. In Jesus' name we ask.